New COVID cases, the highest number since March. It includes 703 imported cases. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The Indonesian government says it's released on parole one of the people responsible for the Bali bombings 20 years ago. The law ministry said Umar Patek had been released early from prison in East Java for what it called good behaviour. The BBC's Michael Bristow reports. In 2012, Umar Patek was in prison for 20 years after a decade-long manhunt. As a member of a radical Islamist group, he'd helped mix the chemicals for bombs that killed 202 people on the holiday island of Bali, many of them Australians. He's ended up serving only half his sentence. His early release was approved in August. At the time, the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said this would only bring renewed distress to families still grieving for their lost loved ones. Scientists have identified the most ancient DNA yet yet buried in an Ice Age sediment in northern Greenland. The DNA is two billion years old, twice the age of the previous record. The study also found that the area, which today is covered in snow and ice, was once a rich forest. The BBC's Rebecca Morell has more. Until now, it's been hard to turn back the clock and see what the Arctic was like two million years ago. Animal fossils from this period are extremely rare there. But scientists have now studied samples of ancient soil unearthed in the northernmost tip of Greenland, and they've discovered DNA shed by plants and animals long ago. The researchers have found genetic traces of elephant-like mastodons, reindeer, rodents and geese that roamed among birch and poplar trees and arctic shrubs and herbs. Marine life included horseshoe crabs and green algae. Finally, President Xi Jinping has arrived in Saudi Arabia for his first visit to the kingdom in six years. During his stay, President Xi will meet King Salman as well as the Gulf States de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and attend regional summits. China is Saudi Arabia's biggest trading partner. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong. I'm Andrew Work, and it ain't coffee talk, it ain't pillow talk, and it ain't honey talk. It's money talk. Money talk, along with oil talk and maybe military equipment sales talk, is expected when Xi Jinping arrives in Saudi Arabia at the invitation of King Salman. He'll attend the first ever China Arab State Summit and the China Gulf Cooperation Council Summit in Riyadh. This comes at a time when Western voters seem to be getting fed up with the Saudi Kingdom's human rights issues and less interested in selling military hardware to MBS's kingdom, perhaps creating an opening for China. While Mr. Xi is away, it seems that there will be more loosening of COVID restrictions, which means opening of the Chinese economy. But that didn't help Hong Kong stocks yesterday as they took a sharp dive. The Hang Seng Index dropped 3.2% yesterday. Trade data released might have been the culprit. A government report shows China's exports shrank shrank 8.7% and imports fell 10.6% in the month of November. Both global and domestic demand were weighing on trade and goods coming in and going out of China. This also impacted on its trade surplus, which dropped to 69.8 billion in November compared to 71.7 billion in the same month last year. That's far below market forecasts of a surplus of 78 billion and change. Stock markets around the world continue to drop, and expectations about interest rates are on the list of culprits. The Bank of Canada hiked rates by 50 basis points, but signaled it may be done with raises for now. 
Helping us to make sense of it all today on Money Talk, we're going to be joined by Enzio von Feil, wealth investment strategist, and Louis Kujis, uh, chief Asia economist at S&P Global Ratings. Now, later in the show, it's Special Guest Thursday, and we're going to be talking about a hot, hot sector that I know a little bit about, but our guest, Tim Alp, CEO of Redbox, knows way, way more. Like all of our guests, he'll be happy to answer your questions via email at moneytalk at rthk.hk or on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or uh, you can uh, send a message to us via Twitter at Money Talk Radio 3. And now it's time to push, push, push for pace because this is Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, people, let's have a look at those markets. The Dow Jones Industrial Average finished exactly flat, 0% anything to two decimal points, which is definitely a first for me. The S&P 500 index dropped 0.2%. NASDAQ gave up half a percent. More indicative is the VIX, which was up 2.3%, indicating a rise in expected volatility. The TSX fell just a sliver of a shade, less than expected given the Bank of Canada's 50-point rate hike and with oil and energy company prices down. Canadian fashion brand Lululemon is expected to announce good results tomorrow with, as your stock quote of the day from Deutsche Bank's Gabrielle Carboni, she says, Lulu's customer base remains relatively healthy. Well, duh. The pan-European stock 600 index wasn't looking too hot with a 0.62% decline. The biggest drop by a constituent company was Nordic real estate firm Samhelsbygen Adbolaget i Norden AB. Their friends call them SBB. Pharmaceutical company GSK was a big winner, up 7.5% in one-day trading. The FTSE 100 is down 0.4% in spite of outstanding performance from pharma stocks, including GSK, and its spin-off, Halion, among others. Across to Asia, the Nikkei 225 shed 0.72% as mining, transportation, equipment, and precision instrument shares dropped. As I said earlier, Hong Kong stocks took a much worse beating. The Hang Seng Index sliding 3.2%. Now, if you thought that China's opening up should be good news for Chinese stocks, you might have been better off looking at the trade data. More on that to come. But domestically, the Shanghai Composite was only down 0.4%, and Shenzhen actually picked up 0.18%. Looking at Brett crude oil is down another 2.6% after big wet spattery drops the day before. Base metals and some of the fancy ones were trending up with palladium up a hair, but copper up almost 1% to match gold's 24-hour rise. Platinum was up 1.7% and silver shot up 2.5%. Looking at bonds, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond slipped 0.094 along with other major nations with the U.K. 10-year bond bucking the trend to rise to 3.049%. Looking at currencies, the euro, the Swiss franc, and the pound were up against the mighty greenback, while the Canadian loonies slipped with loyal prices. On this side of the world, the U.S. dollar lost ground at the Japanese yen, Chinese yuan, Aussie dollar, Singapore dollar, and more. Bitcoin is down 1.4% to sit well below the 17,000 mark, and Ethereum is down 4.5% in 24-hour trading. Only stable coins like Tether seem to be holding steady, as is their nature. A recent poll by CNBC shows only 8% of Americans have a favorable view of crypto, although views sharply diverge between people who have actually used it and those that haven't. The Canadian Pension Plan's investment ended its program to investigate investing in crypto, as two other Canadian pension funds, Ontario Teachers and Quebec's Caisse de Depot, wrote off investments of $95 million and $150 million respectively. 
looking around the region. We're going to have a look at the markets. Uh, what's happening? The Australian Stock Exchange is starting down a little bit, which isn't great. But the Hang Seng Futures Index is pointing upwards right now as we prepare for the markets to open. And those are your markets. And this is Money Talk, and I'm Andrew Work, and I'm here with Enzio von Feil, Wealth Investment Strategist. Good morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. We also have Louis Kutis, the Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Thanks for coming on. Morning, Andrew. Um, gentlemen, uh, one of the big headlines of the day is the Xi Jinping visit to Saudi Arabia. Is this A, purely symbolic? B, symbolic of something uh, interesting happening in terms of realigning, uh, you know, global economic structures and trade flows? Or C, is it style and substance and something might come out of this? I'll take over. Um, I say it's C. I think that there are a number of reasons for this visit. Three in particular, oil, as far as we know, as we all know, obviously, the $60 oil cap would suggest that the Chinese, being quite smart traders, will be going down to Saudi to see if they can't press that $74 average price down to about 60 or at least around that region. Second reason for the visit is um, that, again, oil that China knows that it has to secure supplies coming in from Saudi Arabia. And the key point, though, I think is actually military. I think it has to do with hardware sales. The Chinese want to get into that large hardware sales, hardware military hardware market. And secondly, I suspect also, this is purely just my yet again imagination, that the Chinese also want to bolster their military activities, for instance, in that important choke point, Djibouti. Ah, okay. And tell us a little bit more about Djibouti. Well, it's just a, it, it's one of these narrow points, a little bit like in, like in the Bosphorus, where you, if you, if you control it and they do have a military presence there, then you are, that's one of the, the more powerful trade points in the world because it just, it, it means that you can't, um, pass it without sort of getting clearance. All right. So crucial to be able to have an anchor in there. Uh, Louis Kujis, what do you, what do you take on this? I agree with uh, with with Andrew. I don't think there is one particular reason for this visit. Uh, it also is uh, taking place at a time that there. I think Xi Jinping will join some broader uh, Arab uh, events. So you know, Middle East continues to be an important reason uh, on the import side, export side, and also, of course, if you, when you think about geopolitics. So, yeah. That's why I call it the Middle East, not the Middle East. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I mean, they're not only going to be visiting with Saudi, they're going to be uh, they're going to be having a China Arab summit at the same time as well. Uh, Another dimension to this is the Saudi Arabia, their biggest trading partner is China. But I'm guessing most of that's denominated in U.S. dollars right now. It goes through SWIFT. Mm. Um, Do you think there might be an opportunity here for Mr. Xi to say, hey, how about a little more trade in renminbi? You will buy your oil with it. You'll buy our stuff with it. Uh, maybe run it through the SIPS program, China's answer to SWIFT. I mean, do you think do you think that's in play right now or too early? Well, you know, they've actually tried that before. This is not new. China has been pushing that, has been looking for, uh, you know, denomination in, uh, in RMB. It hasn't gotten very far. 
And I'm not sure, you know, I think actually last week, uh, one of uh, a key Saudi spokesman, uh, a government person mentioned, we have in principle nothing against that, but it is not so obvious. It's not easy for people to change. The incentives are not that strong. So I'm not sure how far they'll get on that. Mm. If I can add to that, I just don't, I'm not a believer in this. Let's go with the renminbi because it's still going to be just a translation effect. Ultimately, these commodities will all be still denominated in, in dollars, whether we want it or not. So whether you trade it in, in Rimbabwe or in Kwacha, it doesn't really matter. Those are from Uganda, by the way. Um, and so um, I thought you might want to know that, Andrew. Uh, yeah, um, key, absolutely. Yeah. That was the key question today. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I just I think this is a little bit overdone. Now, when it comes to payment systems and all that there, I think something's being done. But. Again, if somebody deals in in Rimbabwe, he's still going to say, "What's what's your dollar price? What's your dollar base that you're working off?" I mean, and of course, they they could run U.S. dollars through the Chinese alternative to SWIFT. Yes, I mean, I'm that, not. That, that's enough. I'm not um, good enough on settlements to know how, if that works. Mm. So, so I mean, the other thing I guess Saudi might be looking at this is is the condition of the Chinese economy right now. Uh, mm. You know, more announcement about more opening. <laughs> More, more opening coming up in terms of lifting COVID restrictions, but uh, man, those trade numbers coming out, I think uh, it seems like they shocked a lot of people. Maybe not you guys? Well, to be honest, they didn't shock me that much because they are very much in line with what we saw from mm. other East, uh, East Asian manufacturing exporters. It's very much in line with the data from South Korea, from Taiwan. So, you know, we are seeing on the export side a, a slowing of global trade, especially in that uh, electronics, semiconductors uh part where these three economies are, are, are powerhouses. So it's on the export data didn't surprise us very much. On the import side, it's a little bit more tricky. If you look at it at the details, the, um, the commodity side wasn't so bad in volume terms, where the weakness and the, and the negative surprise uh, was particularly pronounced was on in terms of capital goods imports, um, um, intermediate in, uh, inputs. So there are signs that China's capex cycle is, uh, is slowing. This, again, ties in with China's and the globe's worsting economic time, going back to our view of stagflation coming. Just to give our listeners some idea of shipping costs, the spot rates for shipping have plunged by 87% over the past year, air freight by 50%, the trucking costs by about one-third, and, of course, get real, these these cost savings will not be passed on to consumers. Mm, and, and I mean, I, that's probably a multi-factor situation there with oil costs going down. Like, what is it? Is it oil costs going down, new shipping supply coming online, depressed economic activity, or all the above? All the above, plus the desire, especially in the face of a looming recession, stagflation in my mind also, to keep the margins going if the turnover is going to go down. And. I mean, if, if people are thinking, oh, great, China's going to open up, domestic demand will improve, is that going to be enough to offset the expected recessions from other parts of the world that are going to depress Chinese, economic, uh, uh, Chinese exports? I forgot to read Alice in Wonderland preparing for this interview this morning. <laughs> um, I'm not a believer in this China's opening up, so Merlin with the magic wand is going to make everything just go up, up, up. I actually think that once they open up, and I'm not anti-China at all, but I think that once they open up, you will find a spike in COVID rates going up, in other words, and that's going to lead to another bunch of clampdowns at a local and provincial level. So I don't think the story is far from over. Well, and especially I, if, like Louis said, it's, it's their export drops are matching other nations, Louis. 
On the export side, yes. I mean, the, the import side is the big question for the rest of the mm. world, right? And so, I mean, I do agree with NGO that it will get worse before it gets better, but I'm a bit less pessimistic than him on next year. This is, you know, um, this has not been easy, right? The opening up, uh, lifting your COVID restrictions. Uh, we saw that in many other countries. So I expect hiccups, especially in the first quarter uh, when we have uh, also cold weather. But, you know, um, they, these measures have really been a big constraint, restraint on economic activity. So lifting them should eventually help boost uh, confidence. Well, and so that yeah. should especially come in in the second half. Of mm. next year yeah and especially when you say that uh you know people are people outside of china are interested in the imports if if things do pick up which countries and which sectors are going to improve i mean i think is china's going to be consuming more high-end food drinking australian and you know australian wine canadian wheat i mean who's going to benefit well, the Australian wine still has another issue to deal with. Uh, political it's, it's political. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you if you look at which markets respond to this, and of course, it's not so easy to distinguish because we have that opening up from COVID aspect, but we also have the property sector, um, the, you know, prospects being a bit less bad after the pivot of property policy. So um, oil will definitely uh, uh, help. We'll see more transport, right? Uh, commodity side will, um, will, will be benefiting. And then more generally, um, you know, other imports as people will become again more comfortable about spending on, on, on you know, cars and, and, and other stuff. I think also consumer goods, obviously transport, entertainment also, people want to go out again. And I mean, in terms of people exporting entertainment into China, that's usually been, been heavily restricted. Or do you, do you think that'll help the domestic entertainment industry more? Well, you can't be sideways. I don't really know about the Chinese entertainment industry to add any value on that, frankly. Okay. But, but I think, like, yeah, so this, th these types of, if we look what what part of the economy has been especially hammered, it, it's consumption and the service sector, right? All mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. catering, uh, the, the, you know, uh, all, the, all the service activity that you can think of, and that will indeed be the biggest beneficiary. But nonetheless, the external world will benefit, you know, via those markets and, and, and other exports to China. I guess my point with respect to Louis here is um, that I still think the U.S. is going to slow down next year. Europe is certainly a bit of a trash pail as, as far as economic growth goes. And so I think those things will also affect, so maybe dampen the effect of that opening Okay, guys. Uh, quick hit before we wrap up here. Uh, Bank of Canada, 50-point increase, said they're probably going to level that off, though. U.S. Fed is reporting interest rates next week. Does China have any levers to pull in that area? Uh, you know, so the big question for all these developed market central banks is how much further do you need to raise your rates and how fast should you do that? I was in Australia last week where the big uh, story is that the central bank there wants to play it a bit slower and wants to see the impact of what all these increases that they've implemented so far before they go further. Um, so that's that's a big debate among developed economies, central banks. In China, the opposite is a little bit uh, still the issue. Do we have any room for easing as the U.S. Fed continues to power ahead with interest rate increases? And that, that room, you know, is, is, is very limited at the moment. Okay, Enzio, last word. Yeah, I would just, thank you, I would add that I just don't think that monitoring and fiscal policy are going to be the big it factors with China. I think it's got to be this lifting of the COVID and, the imp and really the the implementation of a proper vaccination policy 
also trying to get around the reviews next of the this thousands of elderly who refuse to get vaccinated that's going to be a real challenge for she Hmm. Continuing. I agree with that. Okay, a lot of China talk today and mention of the Ugandan currency. You can go back and listen in our archives. <laughs> Thank you very much, Enzio Von File, Wealth Investment Strategist, and Louis Kujis, the Chief Economist at SNP Global Ratings. All right, we're back on RTHK Radio 3. This is Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work. And today, uh, Thursday, sometimes we can get uh, different kinds of guests in, uh, in addition to our superstar regulars. Uh, today, we're going to have a talk about uh, hot sector uh, self-storage. You might know some of the big names in the industry, like Store Friendly, Hong Kong Storage, Store Hub, uh, smaller, uh, more you know family-style businesses like Mr. Storage. But today, we got one of the heavyweights of the industry in Hong Kong on. He is Tim Alp, the CEO of Redbox. Good morning, Tim. Morning, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Hey, great. Thanks for coming on. Uh, just give us a, a quick bit of your background. Uh, I've got here that you're you're originally from New Zealand, uh, built up a bit of a career in the hotel industry, a lot of property investment savvy on that side, but you made the switch to uh, self-storage. Why? Yeah, look, I think um, it, it's interesting. Uh, yes, uh, Hong Kong, uh, originally from New Zealand, Hong Kong the last 18 or so years. And uh, I think there was a bit of interesting synergy between looking at how to get the best return uh, out of hospitality assets. And when you're looking at how that programmed, uh, looking at key counts and diversity in your inventory mix, a lot of that similar strategy applies to self-storage and, and as does the customer acquisition journey. So looking looking at uh, self-storage as a specific industry sector, look, I think there's probably been um, a little bit of lack of innovation in the space in, in Hong Kong uh, over the last decade or so and, and, and look, opportunities there to drive some real professionalism and establish the sector. So that was uh, a little bit of the fuel behind the, the thoughts of, of, of stepping into industrial assets and, and self-storage in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, industrial assets have been hot in Hong Kong, but, but this sector in particular, um, I know there have been some big deals done. Can you, can you talk about uh, kind of what's happening with the industry in Hong Kong and how it did under COVID? Yeah, look, I mean, self-storage, very resilient industry and somewhat counter-cyclical, right, in terms of the disruption and dislocation that uh, especially COVID has brought around, you know, whether it's downsizing businesses, freeing up space for uh, work from home, uh, moving out of the country, moving into the country. Uh, I mean, look, 2022 has certainly been a little more challenging than 21. Uh, I think that's predominantly due to the supply uh, in the market as the sector has certainly received a lot of attention over the last 12 to 24 months. But that has also, you know, been benefited from the boost of the awareness uh, because of those aforementioned factors, right? Sales storage was not on the top of the mind of, of most people and probably still isn't, but it's, it's certainly come across uh, the radar of a lot more uh, uh, individuals uh, of late. I mean, industrial assets in Hong Kong have performed well, uh, just industrial itself, self-storage aside, mm -hmm. uh, during code, maintaining pretty typical yields and, and growing warehouses in those verticals that are monitored, sorry, growing rents in those verticals that are monitored, such as, as warehouses. I mean, when you talk about investment, certainly has received a lot of attention, right? Uh, to a certain degree, as an asset class in Hong Kong, it's quite... Uh, it's still in its infancy, right? I mean, it's uh, abroad. If you look at North America, Europe, Australasia, very well established. It falls into the alternative asset sector, a lot of institutional investment. But Hong Kong, it's really just simply industrial, right? And we mm -hmm. find it out a lot of the time with data centers and cold storage and warehouse and logistics uh, and those kind of the like. So over the last couple of years, look, you've seen people coming in from, from the likes of Heitmint and 
Angelo Gordon has dabbled around. Obviously, Blackstone got out of their uh, business and, and buildings. They had an operating platform pre-COVID. Uh, they have returned recently with, with four on-block full, full buildings, uh, which big. is being operated. Yeah, 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 yeah. with store-friendly. I mean, look, that's invested just over a couple of billion Hong Kong dollars, according to reports. I mean, that's, you know, north of 250 million US. So mm-hmm. it's certainly a significant investment versus what the market has seen prior to that. Warburg Pinkus uh, certainly has entered the market. Uh, they have existing presence in Singapore. They've quickly racked up uh, probably around 400,000 uh, square foot of GFA across the city with their operator store hub. Um, and of course, they've also got uh, feelers into China. They've acquired Locker Locker uh, a few months back. Just over a year back, they've got JVs in Thailand and things like that, and and of course Brookfield's uh, entered earlier this year with with our platform Redbox. So, yeah. I mean, when you look at it globally, look, you're seeing a lot of very large, specific self-storing investment vehicles popping up. GCP's got that North American specific fund, 1.5 billion USD. But look, Big, biggest biggest ever biggest ever dedicated fund for the self-storage sector. Which you know, I know. Full disclosure, I'm the executive director of the Self Storage Association. I better know that kind of stuff. Um, but why do you think in Hong Kong, why do you think it's, uh, it seems like it's a, the, the big deals are being done by overseas uh, private equity groups and asset managers, like you mentioned, Canadian Brookfield coming in, it's Americans. Um, why more that than local developers who are not lacking in cash? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, the manner in which the, the strategy is viewed, uh, in my opinion, at the moment. You know, although local developers are essentially creating their own demand in, in a lot of cases and best suited to be in the mix, I think. It's the, you know, it's the way they would look at it. It's an ongoing operating business, right? Long-term hold, it's a yield play basis, right? Less exposed to market fluctuations. Uh, it's also less so as an IRR-driven investment strategy, right? I mean, there's a bit of a perception that there's an element of distress or, or, or value to be had at present, uh, which attracts those opportunistic investors. Obviously, you know, having met, just mentioned, industrial has performed quite well during COVID as well. That's, that's less translated here than it has elsewhere. Um, but, you know, or those that are perhaps slightly less aggressive playing their trade in those in those value-add uh, strategies. And they're both IRR-focused, and they're quite well-suited to the Hong Kong market. So, mm. look, I would say potentially local developers are more likely candidates as, as potential exit parties for platforms, right, that are right. under development. They would look at it as a way to maximize the returns on maybe some of their existing industrial portfolio that they've got floating around, drive new revenues through their new residential developers, and just view it as an operational yield basis, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, self-storage does take time to ramp up, right? We all know that. True. Uh, so those ones that have longer hold periods and a bit more flexibility can investment, uh, can benefit from the current investment cycles in the longer term. Gotcha. we got like 30 seconds left. Uh, very quickly, what is attracting investors to some operators but not others? I mean, uh, you know, governance, state standards, use of technology. we literally got 30 seconds for a last, last wrap-up here. Yeah, okay, real, real quick. Uh, look, I mean, in Hong Kong, very fragmented market, right? Three to four operators make up circa 45, 50% of the available space. Um, after that, there's another 100 or so. So you can see there's a lot of uh, smaller mom-and-pop type shops too. So a couple of things, size, uh, obviously, and scale, right? Remembering mm-hmm. most of these investors are in it for the real estate, and most of the current operators here don't own any, right? So when you're looking at a potential deployment over a very typical investment period, it could be challenging for some larger players to come in, right? Um, and look, existing levels of institutional organization, as you say, um, do they have comply? Are they compliant? Do they have any form of governance? Um, and off the fact, you know, off the back of that, a lot of operators have a lot of strata assets too, and then some investors view that as risky with the residential redevelopment schemes as well. Okay. So look, overall, you know, Redbox has been very well placed to to capitalize on that with with obviously having most of our sites safe certified uh, under the Storage Association and vetted by 
um, there are still opportunities to, to scale platforms in Hong Kong. All right. Well, Tim, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Thank you very much. That's Tim Alp, the CEO of Redbox on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, quick look at the markets before we go. I did say the Hang Seng Futures Index was looking up, but the rest of the region is already in action, and it is a little, uh, little red out there. Nikkei 225, Kospi, and the ASX are all down. Uh, Bitcoin and Ether also on their way down. Uh, I'd like to thank my producer, Christy Lai, and our sound man, Tsang Wing Ming, uh, today helping us out. Uh, just after the news, we're going to have back chat coming up with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb. So get ready for some more excitement on that front. I can see uh, some exciting guests lining up in the studio, ready to go. Uh, looking at the weather, mainly fine, cool in the morning, max temperature around 23 degrees. The temperature now is 19 degrees Celsius. It's 75% humidity. And this has been Money Talk. The time is now 8.31 and the news with Barry O'Rourke. Mainland authorities have announced a loosening of COVID-19 restrictions, which will see frequency and scope of PCR testing reduced. Lockdowns will also be scaled back and people with mild COVID symptoms can isolate at home instead of centralised government facilities. Executive Councillor Geoffrey Lamb says it's a step in the right direction and he hopes officials can negotiate the raising of the daily quota for crossing the border before discussing the full resumption of cross-border travel. The measures announced by Beijing today is very encouraging. I suggest Hong Kong government should start to liaise with the mainland authorities in, you know, first of all, increase the quota of Hong Kong people entering the mainland every day. And secondly, about the quarantine-free measures. If things work out fine, you know, and the number drops from like 10,000 to, you know, 1, 2,000 or even in the hundreds, that would give a very good sign for the authorities on the other side to consider loosening up the procedures. People aged 18 or above who wish to get a fifth dose of a COVID vaccine can make an appointment to do so from Friday next week. More from Todd Harding. In a statement, the administration said people can choose the new BioNTech bivalent vaccine for their fifth jab or the older BioNTech or Sinovac vaccine. The BioNTech bivalent jab will also be available to adults who are getting a third dose of vaccine, with bookings opening this Friday. Meanwhile, authorities said they've arranged outreach medical teams to administer the BioNTech bivalent vaccine to residents of care homes. The government said it's adopting the latest recommendations from an expert panel and the scientific committees of the Centre for Health Protection. The Indonesian government says it's released on parole one of the people responsible for the Bali bombings 20 years ago. The law ministry said Umar Patek had been released early from prison in East Java for what it called good behaviour. The BBC's Michael Bristow reports. In 2012, Umar Patek was in prison for 20 years after a decade-long manhunt. As a member of a radical Islamist group, he'd helped mix the chemicals for bombs that killed 202 people on the holiday island of Bali many of them Australians. He's ended up serving only half his sentence. His early release was approved in August. At the time, the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said this would only bring renewed distress to families still grieving for their lost loved ones. The United Nations General Secretary Antonio Guterres says he's deeply concerned about the first confirmed public execution in Afghanistan since the Taliban returned to power. The UN wants a moratorium on the death penalty. Here's the BBC's Anbarasan Etirajan. 
this event happened inside a stadium, a sports stadium, where many senior Taliban figures were present, including their acting foreign minister, the interior minister, and several other Taliban leaders. It shows the importance given by the Taliban to tell their own people, Afghan people, that you know, they are now serving their own version of Islamic justice. A former paratrooper and a German aristocrat are among those who've been arrested for plotting to overthrow the government. Police raided properties across Germany as well as in Italy and Austria, targeting a right-wing group 